This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Million Veteran Program of the Veterans Affairs Department does not quite have a million participants, not quite yet, but it did recently reach 900,000 when a retired reservist and Purple Heart recipient joined up. For an update on what VA calls its largest research project ever, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke to Program Director Suma Muralidar. So 900,000 sounds like a pretty good milestone to me, but are you still driving toward literally a million veterans to be in this program? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, you know, we're looking forward to getting to the million and even going beyond. We're not going to stop when we get to the million. So this is the idea of big data driven medicine. Is that the fundamental theory behind this program? Yes, absolutely. So to really, un- you know, get to the bottom of how our genetics, our uh, environment, our lifestyle, how all these different factors interplay and influence our health and illness, we need large numbers. It is a, a numbers game, as I always call it. We need large numbers of people with a particular condition and and even larger without it so you can compare and see what contributions each of these factors are making in terms of you know causing risk for a specific illness. It sounds as if there are a range of treatments available for a given malady or situation that a person has, but it may not be within the range of knowledge of a given practitioner for a given patient to know what is the exact best thing in that particular situation. So analytics can maybe help determine that. Is that one of the foundational ideas here? Yes, that is one major aspect of it. It's called pharmacogenomics and that the way people respond to a medication is in part determined um, by genetics for some of the medications. And so really knowing that you could tailor the treatment to the person, you know, at the right time and at the right dose. Sometimes it's just a ma- matter of varying the dose that that's best for the person. Again, deter- could be determined by genetics. And what information then comes from each participant, the 900,000 and eventually a million that you'll have? What is it you need from them to be able to power this type of research? Great question. So first and foremost, the VA has one of the best, the deepest electronic health records and that is a treasure we need their health information from their health record you know what diagnoses they've had when how long what they've been treated what their responses have been so we can see all of that that's their health record clinical data then we collect data from self-reported surveys you know a lot of things about what you eat what your lifestyle is how much you exercise do you drink do you smoke all of that is not really well documented in the electronic health record. So we obtain all these additional information on lifestyle uh, and maybe in, in the case of veterans, even you know where they had been deployed, what they might have been exposed to, you know, military exposures and experience. And that's the second piece, lifestyle, nutrition, military experience, and so on. The third piece is molecular data. We want to get the genetics and other molecular profiles. And for that, we collect a blood sample from our participants. And uh, we do a baseline genetics on everyone who participates. And then we're diving deeper in subsets of patients to do other kinds of analyses like proteomics, metabolomics. That's the goal, to keep doing deeper dive into the molecular information. So then we have this very comprehensive data set on a person that you can then look at all how they all contribute. 
And some of this data is expository, like, you know, this is what I eat for breakfast and lunch and dinner and so on. Some of it is structured data, say, from the VISTA system where their records exist. And some of it is whatever form molecular data takes. You must work with IT people to kind of normalize all this and put it all in one place where it's accessible. Is that a component? Yes. So we, you know, we made a decision early on that we would rather than distribute data sets to researchers because this is big data and for a good reason because many individual researchers may not even have access to storage and computing of such large data sets. So we wanted to bring researchers to the data in a central computing, scientific computing environment, provide all the tools that they need to analyze the data and, you know, and give them role-based, whatever they're approved for, their research projects, we give them access to the data needed for that project. And, and I'll just pick up on one other thing you mentioned, you know, so there is a lot of structured data, but there is also a lot of uh, validation and curation of data that needs to happen both for the molecular data that we generate from the blood samples and also from even the electronic health record data and the survey data. So there's a lot of effort that we put in as a core program to curate and make this data sets uniform and research ready, if you will. Got it. We're speaking with Suma Muralidar. She's program director of the Million Veteran Program. And what have people been looking at so far? What are some of the research projects you've approved that people are accessing the data and looking at? So there've been a wide range of studies. You know, we've looked at a number of conditions that we see in veterans from heart disease, various types of heart, uh, heart failure, uh, cardiovascular disease, cardiometabolic disease, um, diabetes, kidney disease, and the whole range of mental health conditions, PTSD, anxiety, depression. Uh, we have a project on Gulf War illness. So you name it, so we're really, and this is the reason we want to get to a million and beyond, because then we can really look at a wide range of projects. And then more recently, when the pandemic hit, we were also able to leverage this data set and look at how host genetics, like our DNA, how does that contribute to the way people experience COVID-19, for example. So we've been able to make some uh, discoveries in that space as well. And interesting, you mentioned diabetes, renal disease, and mental health and heart earlier. These are mature areas for medical research. I mean, there was the Framingham study that went for a million years and probably had a million, I forget the numbers, but landmark study. And of course, renal has been, you know, dialysis is 75 years old. The implication is, though, that there's still a lot more to learn, even with things we thought we understood. Yeah, so these are very complex diseases. And so we know some about them, but the whole, you know, the capability to get into the genetics and all these molecular profiles is, it's it's an evolving technology that's enabled us to do this. So we can look at more now and we can discern more, learn more about what causes these illnesses or how can we better treat them. And the researchers that are working on these data sets to try to come up with new answers, are they mostly from VA or do you have academic and maybe even commercial medical system partners also in here? So currently they're largely VA. VA research program is an intramural research program, but on all our projects we have academic affiliates collaborating. So uh, you know, so a lot of academic affiliate researchers already have are participating in the projects. 
but the access to the data is within the VA system right now. So you have to be a, a VA investigator to be able to touch the data. Uh, but we are looking at, we're now piloting what we call the VA data commons, which is outside the VA firewall where we will de-identify the data set completely. And so federal researchers from other federal agencies and academic researchers can access it uh, more directly. And as the data base gets larger, 500,000, 900,000, a million, are you able to discern whether there's a point at which there's no more return on adding more data in there? Or could it be 2 million or 10 million? And I guess the follow question would be, as more women come into the veterans' ranks, that must have a big effect mm -hmm. on what it is you're able to discern. Absolutely. Great questions. You know, the first one you asked, I don't know if there'll ever be a limit. I think we will always evolve new analytic methods to analyze. You know, that's also evolving the way people analyze large data sets. And maybe when we compare with atmospheric data or, you know, other large global data that exists, we are still not quite there yet. So I think we will continue to evolve and learn more uh, as we get more and more data. Um, the second question is a great question. Yes, so we do about roughly 10% or so, a little less than that, 9% um, of our participants are women. And we did actually launch a women's campaign last year to, uh, to increase the number of women. And we will continue to do that as we go forward because we do want to increase that population representation within the Million Veteran Program cohort. And this has um, been going some time, so it seems like successive secretaries, successive leadership at VA really sees the value in this, it sounds like. Yes, yes. Thank you for asking that question. I'm, I'm really very grateful that we have been able to sustain, and not just sustain, but really uh, have this program advance to where it has under the leadership. All the leaders of the agency have been very supportive. Sumamur Lidar is Program Director of the Million Veteran Program in the Office of R&D at the Veterans Health Administration. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology, at the School of Public Affairs at American University, and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, 
ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took pr um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with an, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.